Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to the Music Room. This time in the music room. And he answers the door in his USC ball cap and sweatpants and like, what? You know? So I spend an afternoon crawling underneath his desk with him sitting there drinking coffee, watching me, you know? Stuff, just weird things like that. Hello and welcome to The Music Room, the show where I chat with composers, songwriters and musicians about what's happening with them before going back in time to find out how it all began. In this episode, you're going to hear from Dean Ogden, drummer, producer, composer, songwriter. He's done it all and has the most fascinating story. He grew up in the US, now lives in Bali. Lots of interesting stuff happened in between. And stick around because Dean has some great advice and a very interesting item to leave in the music room. But first, music stories. Music Room alumnus Daisy Cool and composing partner Tom Nettleship are scoring a brand new drama series for Channel 5. The four-part thriller For Her Sins, which stars Joe Joyner and Rachel Shenton, started yesterday. That's June the 5th at 9pm. Massive congratulations to Daisy and Tom. I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's on my watch list. Next, I asked the Music Room community on Facebook a big question. What's one quality you look for in a collaborator? Hmm... Rod, this is going to sound lame, but honestly, it's way more enjoyable if you get on to some degree socially and can have a laugh together. Criticism will always sound more palatable when coming from someone you trust. I I agree with that, Rod. Toby says, someone who will force me to bring my A game or more. And he air quotes, you only get better by playing a better opponent. Okay, yeah. Herman, these days, someone who commits and actually sees the collaboration through in brackets, size pensively. Oh, dear. Sounds like uh, Herman was let down a little bit there. Uh, Still, we try these things out, don't we? Marco, fun and commitment first and foremost. Yeah, great stuff, Marco. Uh, Anik, to me, organised and reliable are equal to creative and nice these days. I agree with that to an extent, Anik. I think maybe if you can have all four, that's even better, isn't it? Organised, reliable, creative and nice. That's a winner to me. Neil, a pulse. (laughs) Okay. Looks like Neil's looking for collaborations. Come and say hello to Neil in the Music Green community on Facebook. You too can take part in wonderful discussions within the Music Room community via the Facebook group or via the Instagram feed or subscribe to the newsletter. It's all there to help and links are in the show notes or head to musicroom.community to find out more. And if you like this section, I mentioned the Music Room newsletter there, which you can read, share, subscribe to, whatever tickles your fancy. And the link, as they say, is in the show notes. Dean Ogden is an American record producer, session and touring drummer and co-founder, songwriter, drummer of the band Stone Cold Killers. Over a long and winding career, Dean has worked as a recording and touring drummer with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Robbie Williams and Seal, written the music for feature films and primetime TV, 
and produced some of Indonesia's finest musical talent. With no further ado, let's hear from Dean himself. Dean Ogden, composer, producer, rocking drummer. Welcome to the Music Room. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. It's really an honor to have some time with you. It's cool. You are all the way over in Bali, where you live. This is fantastic. How is it in Bali today? It's fantastic. It's, well, it's, it's nighttime now, but it, today it was wonderful. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of perpetual summer here. It never, yeah. never gets cold, um, which is good and bad, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but it's pretty great for kids and, you know, beach time and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a, it's a good hang. It's a nice place to work and live and. Yeah, we really wow. like it. We've been we've been at Bali now for almost 10 years. So yeah, wow. it's been great. It's really great. I don't I don't see I don't see us leaving anytime soon, you know, unless some apocalyptic nightmare takes place or something. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's quite a difference uh from your roots, which we will get into. Uh I'm sure there's a fascinating yeah. story there about how you got to mm. Bali. But yeah, just by means of introduction, it's I think it's really hard to introduce someone when they, I don't think you fit the mold particularly, (laughs) you know, you've been a drummer with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Jewel, Robbie Williams, Al Jarreau, Britney Spears, Natalie Imbruglia, and so many more artists, Uh, but then compose the music for feature films, primetime TV, as well as producing for a lot of artists. So for those listeners who are trying to figure out where they fit in the huge tapestry that is the, the music business. How do you see yourself? Very lucky. You know, (laughs) I I mean, you know, credits can be, I don't know, they're interesting. You know, I've I've definitely played with a lot of people, but I was never really anybody's drummer. You know, I, I sat in with a lot of people. I did, you know, a lot of small tours, filled in for people, but never was really like the number one guy, you know. So it's kind of been a career of just, I guess, you know, what, what a lot of musicians probably do is just you do whatever you can to survive. You know, I've, I've, I've played with a lot of people. I've produced records, like you said. I've, I've definitely, there was a period of time, I don't do it so much anymore, but there was definitely a period of time where 100% of my energy went into film scoring. And, you know, when I was living in Los Angeles, I was really pursuing that. And I kind of thought that would be the thing that, that I was most interested in, you know, after playing drums my whole life and sort of trying to carve out a career doing that is it's pretty difficult, or at least it was for me. And, and, it, and it, it never really materialized into anything permanent. You know, I was a jobbing drummer, which I loved, you know, and that's really what I wanted to do from the time that I was a little kid, you know, is just be a studio musician. And I achieved that and it was great and I loved it. And then where I lived in Los Angeles, you know, the, that that industry kind of dried up and everybody bailed and went to other places. So I, you know, I was all, I always loved movies, always loved film music. Growing up, I was a huge John Barry fan and loved James Bond and, you know, of course, Williams and, you know, all the, all the, all the greats. Right. But also on the classical side, I mean, I was a huge Aaron Copeland fan and just loved John Cage, of course, being a percussionist and a drummer and just loved that kind of stuff. But I never was really as in love with that as I was with playing drums, despite trying to sort of like sidewind myself into a second career being a, a film composer. But I did it for a decade, 
you know, and I, and I did a lot of fun stuff and I don't have any regrets about it, but I have since kind of found myself sort of drifting back to my first love of, you know, playing drums and, you know, being on the road and being a touring drummer and being in the, spending a lot of time in the studio, doing a lot of sessions. And so that's kind of how it's been. It's been, it's been 30 plus years of touring studio sessions for a time, television and film, and then sort of full circle back to touring and sessions now, you know, mm. with my band. Yes, your band, yeah. Stone Cold Killers. Uh, you're really scratching that drumming itch, aren't you, with the, with the Stone Cold Killers? I saw the video, your first video earlier, which is oh, cool, great. yeah, really cool. Thanks, man. Um, Thanks. How did it all come about with those guys? Yeah, it's it's the craziest thing, man. So, in uh, I, I moved I moved from LA to Indonesia in late 2010, early 2011. And I was on tour and I came over, came over to Jakarta to do some shows. And I met the woman who's now my wife and kind of never left. You know, <laughs> I went back to LA for, I went back to LA for a couple of years, but we sort of had this long distance thing that was a nightmare. And so I finally just, I sold everything in LA, moved over here and, you know, off to the races and started a family and all that kind of stuff. And so, and then we moved to Bali when our first son was born three three or four years later. But while I was in Jakarta, I met this this kid. He's a guitar player. And we I don't remember exactly how we met. I think we met from maybe through a mutual friend or something. But anyway, he was playing in a band over there and I went to hear his band at a jazz club over there and just really switched on kid, man. Indonesian kid. Didn't really speak much English, but just a an Alan Holdsworth type, John McLaughlin kind of guitarist, just really, and really young. You know, he was, I guess at the time he would have been, he would have been about 20 in his mid twenties, you know, and um, single guy and just, you know, working in studios over there. There's quite a bit, quite a few high-end studios over in Jakarta. Cause that's where if, if, if there is a music scene in Indonesia, that's where it is. You know, it's where the work happened. So he was there from his village, kind of a transplant, sort of an LA type thing, like for me, you know, and I met him and we, we jammed together a couple of times and I, I sat in with his band once and, you know, that was a lot of fun and we just became friends and we had a shared love of level 42, the band. And right. when I, when I was a little kid that they, they, Phil Gould has always been my drumming idol. He's, he's like the Mount Rushmore for me, you know? <laughs> and so Pfizer, this kid, and I realized that we were both huge fans of the founding founding era of Level 42, the Gould brothers and Mark King and Mike Linda. And so we kind of shared that passion and we just stayed in touch. You know, I moved to Bali and he stayed there and kept working and doing his thing. And over the course of 10 years or so, we just stayed in touch and, you know, through Facebook and all that. But we were always talking about, man, we got to do something together. You know, we got to do we got to do a project or something or write some songs or, you know, something. I mean, we just we just played together those two or three times. And that was awesome. And I could feel there was something there. And I had a I had a medical issue about a year ago. I was in, I spent you know a couple months in the hospital. And while I was in the hospital, I got this text from him and he goes, hey, he goes, dude. I moved my family to Bali. We've been here for two months. Where are, where are you? Like, well, I'm laying in the hospital, man. Like I just had double surgery, you know? And he's like, whoa, what? So as soon as I got out of the hospital, we got together, you know, he came and visited me and we talked and 
we hadn't seen each other in 10. We literally had not seen each other or spent any time together in the same room in 10 years. And he's a grown man now. He's got a family, two kids, you know? And I said, you know, when I, when I can, <laughs> when I can hold food in my mouth again, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to do one of those projects we keep talking about. And he goes, yeah, it would be great. It would be great. And he was over here doing resort gigs. There's a tons of resorts because it's a tourist island, you know, it's a, it's basically the the Hawaii of Australia, you know. So all the Australian tourists come over and there's tons of resorts. And for musicians over here, if you're if you're a resort uh player, you can really make a great living. And that's what he was doing. He was over here doing that and just providing for his family. So I got better over the course of about six months and good enough to get together with him and, and have a have a play at my studio. And it was just like, we just picked right. I mean, you know how it is. Musicians get together. It's just, we just, it was like, we didn't miss anything. It was just like, we were finishing the sentence from the day before, you know? And I said, man, we got to do something. Let's, let's find a couple of cats and build something and, and, you know, have a go at this. And he's like, okay. And at the time I was just kind of thinking, you know, maybe we could just do some gigs around the area or something, you know, just for fun, just on the weekends or whatever, because we're both doing other stuff. But we we got really fortunate. We we had a we had a singer for a while for about a month that was really talented. But he wasn't the guy that we wanted. We wanted uh, this kid who had been been a, a finalist on The Voice Indonesia over in Jakarta. Cool. But he was locked into a contract with NBC, and he was or, or not NBC, but Universal over there. And, you know, still had some residual things to take care of as a holdover from being on that show. And he couldn't really get out of it. You know, he was gigging every weekend for them and doing all this other, you know, appearances and stuff. And so it didn't really work out. And then the bass player that I wanted, um, I'd played with a ton before in, in other touring situations, but he was super busy and not available and just couldn't lock him down. And we couldn't find anybody who played horns. We really wanted a horn player and we couldn't find anybody. And we tried a couple of keyboard players and those people didn't really work. You know, we were just, just kind of fumbling over ourselves for two or three months. And then one week, it sort of all came together. The bass player called me and said, hey, man, I've canceled all my contracts and I'm I'm ready to go. And I was like, whoa, OK. So he came, he joined. And then the singer that we would that we had originally tried to get uh, he goes, well, let's just get together and see what happens. And so we got together with him and we wrote a song on the first day. It's probably one of our, you know, better tunes. And, and by the time we were done with that, he's like, yeah, I'm just going to tell my lawyer, get me out of this thing. You know, I want to <laughs> go do this with you guys. And then a band that I had produced a record for, uh, they had a friend from Sumatra who's what, what, you know, it's about four or five islands over from Bali towards Singapore, who is just this killer just wonder kind just prodigy saxophone player just a just a, just a complete anomaly over here there's just not very many you know really soulful players especially a sax player you know and his name was Cham and he was coming over to visit this this band that I'd produced and and Paul the lead singer of the Bar Dogs this band that I worked with he goes man you got to meet my friend you know he's killer and he's going to sit in with us this weekend up at you know the gig we're doing and so i went over to the gig they were doing and as soon as i heard this kid play i just made a beeline for him to the <laughs> stage right after they were done and i just totally stole him from those guys man i just like <laughs> told paul i'm so sorry i i know you just introduced me to john but 
he's not going to play with you guys. <laughs> play with me, you know. I just totally, I just totally ripped him off. And as soon as I pitched the vision for the band, he he said, "I'm totally in. I'm I'm 100 in." So like the next day, all five of us got together and we just we've been going ever since. That was about five months ago, six months ago. And uh, because of you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a a commodity here, I guess, because there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of, of Western musicians here. And then of course our singer who is a national television star for two years. So, and then, and then our guitarist Pfizer, the, the kid that I, you know, had the history with, he's played with some really big Indonesian names um, as a studio player. And our bass player was in a big band, a big touring band here. So we're all sort of like, it, it's, it's almost like a super group in a way, yeah. at least over here, you know, in Indonesia, it is, it wouldn't be anywhere else, but over here, it's, you know, this really strange mixture of, of, of cats and so we started writing and we found that we write really quickly and and it's it's pretty hooky stuff and you know kind of a cross between a you know funk rock and 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 pop rock and with a lot of real you know kind of crazy musicianship and odd time signatures and sort of progressive you know flavors kind of thrown into it we're all big yes fans and genesis fans and level 42 freaks and you know so just kind of this hodgepodge of, of oddities you know um king crimson you know that kind of stuff it's kind of taken off on us you know we, we got booked at all these major festivals over here southeast asia and it's just it's moved way faster than i think any of us ever thought it would it's just you know we 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 played a couple of big shows and that got us a lot of national notoriety and we just it just kind of took off from there and so we're just we're sort of riding the wave we're not really sure where it's going to go best way though isn't it yeah it totally is it really is it's just a it's one of those situations where we're just saying yes to the universe and you know whatever yeah. we're not we're not doing a lot of knowing you know, we don't we don't know what's happening and we're not saying no to a lot of things. You know, we're just kind of saying, yeah, let's do it. Who cares? Let's go. What else would we be doing? <laughs> around, you know? That's interesting you're saying about all those influences, because when I went to watch your video, I didn't know quite what to expect. I was hmm. expecting kind of rock. But then, yeah. like you say, the saxophone comes in and I'm like, hang on a minute. Where's this going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and you've yeah. got the the jazz influences on the guitar and and yeah it's it's quite different and yet quite nostalgic at the same time and when you were saying about the um you know the the components of the band and the the experiences and stuff it put me in mind of toto you know these guys were these amazing session players in their own right and then they came together as a group and produced this phenomenal work yeah that's a that's a good i mean i i would you know Obviously, don't want to compare us to those legends, <laughs> but yeah, but but I mean, it's a similar circumstance where you know everybody's mm. had a career already. You know, mm. um, Cham is really the he's the youngest guy in the band. He's twenty six, but the rest of the four of us have had you know a couple decades at least of you know real solid experience and touring and recording and and so for the first time really in my career, like. You know, I'm part owner in something that actually means something for the future. You know, that's what it feels like, at least, yeah. you know, like I'm not I'm not working for somebody else. We're writing all the stuff together. 
I'm producing most of it for us. You know, we kind of do it together, sort of like in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm definitely mixing and engineering and mastering everything so far, at least. And wow. you know, we we we're we're doing crazy things. We're we're collab. I can't really reveal it because we're not we don't have a hundred percent nailed down yet. But we're we're we've kind of hatched this plan to do some collaborations with Western artists intriguing you know, kind of virtuosic sure. players over in the west that that i've crossed paths with at, at some point or you know that are, are, are aware of us and um and kind of having them guest on certain songs and you know so that's opened up a lot of doors of course you know to come over to america and do some dates over there next year and wow. australia this this uh later this year after after winter's over there so it's interesting man i mean i've I've been in tons of bands my whole life, but never my own, you know? So this is like the first, this is a real first in a lot of ways. Yeah. So. And it's the right way around, isn't it? You've got all the experience and now, you know, you can hit the ground running yep. really, can't you? Yeah. It's no drama. Everybody's got families. Everybody's yeah. a dad, you yeah. know, like nobody's, nobody's looking for, nobody has got stars in their eyes or jealous over money or, you know, none. Yeah. we don't have any of that stuff. It's just, it's. It's a, it's a real mature, you know, group of dudes and it's just, we're having a, we're having a blast. I'll put that video in the show notes for you and, um, Oh, cool. Thank you. Look on with great interest at your progress. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll to see, see where, where you go with it. Yeah. Either um, be, but, be the biggest failure of all time or the, you know, the, who, I mean, who knows? We're well, just going to go you know, for it. It's better to have tried, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. But that's now. Uh, if you're ready to go back in time, I'm interested sure. to see how you got to this point. <laughs> mm. Right back yeah. to the beginning. Here we are, back in time. Right. So we talk about the the J word, and it's probably overused in the media, but your journey has spanned continents. It spanned decades. How did it all start for you? And you know, how young were you? for instance, when you first became aware of music? Well, I was kind of born into it. My, my, both of my parents, my mom and my dad, were both jobbing musicians. My dad was a bass player, guitar player, banjo player, accordion, a bunch of odd, strange, mo- mostly folk and um, bluegrass instruments. Yeah. But he was raised on, you know, he was a child of the 60s, Obviously, so he was, you know, he was raised on Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and and, uh, you know, Eagles and uh, a lot of West Coast and American uh, Americana type music. Dan Fogelberg and um, Boz Skaggs and Cat Stevens and, you know, that kind of stuff, sort of the hippie generation, singer songwritery, you know, Joni Mitchell. Fantastic generation. Yeah, really good, really high quality, you know, intellectually sound lyrically, you know. Um, and that, so that was that side of it. And then my mom was a drummer. She was a she was a majorette in high school. And then she was part of the drill team and stuff. And, and she she took up the drums and played drums in, in a couple of bands. And when my mom and dad met, they joined a band together. And my mom was the drummer. My dad was the uh, rhythm guitar player. And there was a shakeup within the band. 
And they basically told my dad, hey, you need to buy a bass because we need a bass player. We have another guy who plays six string. You know, we don't need two. So my dad hurried up and bought a bass and learned it. And then when they figured out my mom could sing very well, um, they sort of pulled a Phil Collins and she came out in front of the band and <laughs> hired another drummer. So that's kind of how it all happened. And I was kind of like conceived in the middle of all that. You know, they were, <laughs> were they were they were a regional act. It wasn't anything huge, but they were pretty busy up up and down the coast of Oregon, which is where I'm from. And um, they were kind of a thing in our geographical area. And in the midst of the three or four year run they had, I was I was born somehow, you know, in the middle of all that. And so there's pictures of me like, you know, in asleep in bass drums and, you know, <laughs> sleeping in the back of band vans and band wagons and, you know, speaker cabinets and all this crazy stuff. And so my mom's side of it, you know, was more Neil Diamond, uh, Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, a lot of country, country rock. And so I kind of got that sort of flavor from her. And then my dad was kind of more on the band side, you know. So I, I was just constantly around it. I was around it, you know, with their gigs. I was around it in the car all the time. I was, it was, it was a situation where all my all my quote aunts and uncles were musicians because they were band members and road crew and all this, you know, kind of stuff. And it was just sort of like it was like the jackass movie, except everybody's a musician, you know. <laughs> So that's kind of how I grew up. You know, I grew up in in the, in the middle of all that. And they never encouraged me to do it. They never encouraged me to follow that path. They never said, oh, you need to do this or, you know, do what we're doing or anything like that. But they also never discouraged me from it either. Is there some kind of inevitability about, you know, when you say I was born into a musical family, really, I mean, born in a bass drum on the road. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Surely there's some kind of inevitability that you would... I think so. Falling yeah, people people have asked me about that before, and I, I just you know I just think it's it's a you know nature nurture. I was I was nurtured around musicology, essentially. You know, it was just a. I got a good friend who's who both of his parents were lawyers, and he's just a brilliant. He's not a lawyer, but he's he knows everything there is to know about law because he just grew up in that atmosphere, you know, and he just decided for whatever reason to be in real estate instead of being in law, but he could have very well mm. got shot to the top of his class in law school. Had he decided, you know, it's kind of one of those kind of deals. I think, you know, I just yeah. never really knew anything else, you know, um, after I came along, they, they buckled down and, had real jobs, you know, because they had to provide. And then where where I lived, there was no music scene other than, you know, kind of what they were doing just on weekends, sort of weekend warrioring it, you know. So my dad, you know, started his own business and kind of became a family business. And with him and his and his father, my grandpa, and they did that. But but it was still a huge part of my life. You know, it was I I I I don't remember a time, and I know it sounds cliche because a lot of people say it, but I really don't remember a time where there wasn't music playing in the car, at home, on the way to school, you know. I mean, it just was just was was always on. I would come home from, you know, it was the era of MTV, and I would come home come straight home from school on the bus. I'd let myself in. I was a latchkey kid because my parents were at work. <laughs> And I would let myself in and I'd make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and sit down on the couch and watch MTV for three hours, you know, at its at its peak, you know, when it was still actual music videos and, you know, just that kind of culture. So I just I just I just was never without it. 
So was your introduction to playing just having instruments around and just hitting things and playing things? Yeah, my mom had a couple of drum sets in the basement. And, you know, even after her and my dad's band broke up, she still kept playing with other bands or singing with other bands, rather. And she had a drummer for a while named Dennis, and he had a champagne sparkle Ludwig kit in our basement where they did their rehearsals. And I wasn't allowed to go down there and touch anything. But of course, I went down there and sat, played his drums all the time. I mean, you know, they had they had rehearsal like Tuesday nights, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday were my rehearsals, you know, on his drums. And he, I remember he was always coming up. Yo, who played my drums? This is moved and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was always me. And so I just got bit by the bug, you know, I just and then there was a series of, you know, uh radio discoveries you know my sharona in 79 and a huge drum intro i'll i'll never forget the first time i heard that my mom brought the 45 home and gave it to me and i went upstairs and played it and you know five days later she's banging on the roof with a broom you know can you please change the record you know but i just wouldn't stop and my dad you know my dad said several times we couldn't have stopped you if we wanted to you just wouldn't quit you know, it just it was the only thing I cared about. I didn't want to be outside playing with my friends. I didn't want to, I wasn't interested in sports in any way. I wasn't interested in anything, but just playing drums and playing music, you know, really until I graduated from high school, you know, I was, I worked, worked in high school and really one band primarily with my best friend, who's also a session player in Nashville. Now, you know, we kind of went, I went to LA, you went to Nashville when we graduated, he's a guitar player. He's played with a lot of people and still talk to him all the time. We're still really super close. But we were in a band together. It was like a funk band. We original outfit that we put together with a couple of students from the college that was in the same hometown that we had. So we were the young guy. We were the 15, 16 year olds and they were the 20 year old college kids. And we played frat and sorority parties every weekend. And we were sort of the it band in town for that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what I cut my teeth on. And then when I graduated from high school, you know, I moved to L.A. And mm. What prompted the move to L.A.? Why L.A.? Well, L.A. was, you know, at least in my brain was the, at the time, this was 93 when I graduated from high school. So it was still, it was still, even, even though the Seattle sound had kind of taken over by that point and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and you know, STP and bands like that, you know, so Soundgarden, you know, that that thing had happened already in 91, 92, when I was still in school. But it was still LA. LA was the place, you know, if you wanted to be a session musician, you moved to LA, you know, and if you want to be a jazz musician, you'd go to New York. And if you want to play country, you go to Nashville, you know, it was just kind of the thing that was the understanding, right? Unspoken understanding. And so, I kind of bumbled around and sort of, you know, probably wasted a couple of years kind of deciding whether or not to to really go down there permanently. But by the time I finally did in the late 90s, um, there was still enough of a scene down there, mostly pop, where I could get involved. And, you know, it took a few years. I, I did a lot of stuff for free, you know, to, to, I mean, hundred, hundreds of sessions for free for people just trying to network and get to know people and, and understand, you know, the lay of the land and LA is a big place. I was, I was scared. I was young. 
you know, I'd never lived in a place that was larger than, you know, 23,000 people, which is the town I came from in Oregon, you know, just a little, little coastal town in Oregon. So moving to, you know, the metropolis of LA, you know, seemed pretty daunting. And first couple of years was, was real interesting, made a lot of mistakes and moved to the wrong area several times and didn't realize, oh man, I'm just, I couldn't be further away from where the action is, you know, and God, now I'm stuck in this six month lease type deal, you know, but I, I navigated through that and um, just got real fortunate. You know, I met a lot of people. One of the, one of the smartest things I ever did is I got a job at Guitar Center, which, you know, in the, in, in America is like the biggest music retail chain in America. I think it still is. Maybe Sweetwater might be a bigger and bigger now, but Back then, Guitar Center was the brick and mortar place, you know, and they had a huge flagship store on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. But they also had another flagship store in Sherman Oaks, which is just over the Hollywood Hills in the basin in the valley um, on Ventura Boulevard. And I just happened to move <clears throat> just down the street from it. So I walked down there and I got a job immediately. I became really good friends with the general manager who was a pretty high up guy in the corporation. And he made me a store manager. He made me an assistant manager of that flagship store, like within weeks. So I got super fortunate there. He really took care of me and gave me a huge opportunity and just and running that store or helping to run that store with him and his and the other associate managers taught me a lot about business and how to deal with people in LA and how to deal with professional musicians and how to deal with tour directors and people would come in. I mean, there's there's tons of stories from that place. I worked there for about two and a half or three years. And while I was getting my career going, you know, kind of on the side. But, you know, one of many things that happened is I installed a Pro Tool system at Steven Spielberg's house. I wow. And I didn't know. I didn't know it was him. And they just sent me up there in a van with a bunch of gear and said, yeah, this guy bought this stuff. You need to go hook it up. He's a VIP client. I'm like, okay, cool. And I go in this big gated giant you know, compound and he answers the door in his USC ball cap and sweatpants. And I was like, what, you know? So I spend an afternoon crawling underneath his desk with him sitting there drinking coffee, watching me, you know, wow. stuff, just weird things like that. And I just learned how to network with people and how to, you know, stay in touch with people and know who they knew and research and do all that stuff that you do, you know, when you're trying to build so it was a really great opportunity for me. And I still, to this day, I have clients and relationships that are from that time in my life that now, you know, 20 years, 20 years ago, you know, that, that I still, I still collaborate with people from that time. And, you know, it was really a great, great time in my life. I hated it at the time because I didn't want to be there, <laughs> but in hindsight, it was the greatest move ever, you know, it was just, yeah. it was, it was awesome. I'm sure you so, get people asking you, you know, what do I need to do to get here? And hmm. you have to say, well, you know, decide what you want to do and then do anything yeah. you can around that to point in that direction. You know, for you, that's obviously yeah, be working, at, working at Guitar Center. And yeah, you know, and really, be, you know, decide what you want to do, but also be open to what comes your way, you yeah. know, and I for, for me, that was a huge part of it. You know, I wanted to be a professional drummer. That was my goal. But I had a few things to learn first. You know, I needed to learn how to run a business, for instance, how to handle my finances, how to keep myself secure enough so that I could pursue 
the drumming career without having to take every single gig because I was starving to death, you know? So I had this great job on the side, you know, it didn't, it didn't make me rich, but I didn't have to worry as much as I would have had, had I just been like, oh, screw that. I'm just going to go full tilt. I'm going to go down to the clubs every night and find out who needs a drummer. You know, if I would have done that, I probably would have had to go back to Oregon to my folks, you know? And, you know, that wouldn't have been a bad thing either. I mean, I, I say that a lot too when I talk to young musicians. Having a place to go back to, the security of that is worth a lot. You know, my parents would have taken me back in a minute. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I couldn't lose was a huge asset. You know, if I failed in LA, the worst that was going to happen is I have to go back and eat my mom's cooking every night, which isn't a bad thing, you know? <laughs> and I know a lot of people don't, you know, some people don't have that. So I feel real fortunate that I did, you know, that my parents were, they were, they were a hundred thousand percent supportive. They, they just never, they never questioned anything. They never looked at me like, man, are you sure this is a good idea? You know, none of that. They were just like, yeah, dude, go try it. Who who knows? You, you're probably just as good as anyone else is doing it. So yeah, go for it. Who knows? You know, they were just totally open about it. So there was a lot of things about it that, that really, I think, set me up for success and, I just felt like that there was nothing to lose by trying, you know? So that was kind of my initial entrance to Los Angeles and that whole scene down there. So fast forward then, you obviously find success doing your drumming as a professional drummer and you move into composing for TV and film. Yeah. At at what point do you think, I'm going to up sticks, I'm going to move my life? over to the complete other side of the world. You know, where do you, how do you go from being a session musician and composer in LA to that's it. I'm, I'm off. I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was not well thought through. Let me just say that, uh, you know, it sounds, sounds great. Sounds, uh, you know, brave and, and crazy, but it was, it was really, it was a combination of things, you know, by the time I left LA, it was too, would have been too, well, I, I I had my last big tour in 2008 and sort of around that time when I got back off that tour, that was with Britney Spears. I went on a, a South South American tour with her for about six months. And it was, it was a weird situation. It was like sponsored by a hotel chain and it was just kind of this strange, but it was fun. But it was when I came back off of it, LA was kind of gone. It was like, no one was really there anymore. It was, it was like really? while I was gone, Something happened and everybody bailed to Nashville. In six months. Yeah, but probably longer than that, maybe over yeah. the course of eight, you know, eight, let's say 18 months. But I wasn't really paying oh. attention because I was preparing to go on this thing, you know, and I was I was busy. So when I'm and I'm and you know, I'm guilty of, you know, when I'm when I'm busy, I don't really look up, you know. I get really bad about keeping in touch with people and stuff because I'm so focused on this thing, you know. So I wasn't really aware of what was happening, I think. I wasn't really paying very good attention. But man, when I was gone for six months or, you know, it was about about seven, seven and a half months. By the time I returned home, the place was a ghost town, at least in my circles. You know, there was probably a lot of stuff happening that I wasn't involved in. But in my circles, everybody had kind of been like, you know, they'd kind of seen the writing on the wall and they 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 went yeah. they went to Nashville where a lot of recording was still happening and still to this day is really kind of the hub in America for live for for actual recording musician. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came back and thinking, well, I'll just go right back into session work. 
you know, this was a great tour. It was a nice diversion for a few months and, you know, made, made some, some good money doing that. And, um, you know, I'd been out with her once before, so it was kind of the same team and it was familiar and it was easy, not, not easy, but familiar. And I kind of knew where things were, you know, it wasn't like a reinventing the wheel type deal. And when I go back, I'll just sail right back into what I was doing before. Well, that didn't happen because the recording business had literally moved to Nashville while I was gone. And I contemplated going over there. I went and visited my buddy who I spoke about before, you know, my high school friend, uh, Rob Eisler, and and thought about, you know, maybe go hang out with him for a few months and, you know, see what what I could drum up over there. No pun intended. Um, but, but I just, I don't know. I, I decided instead to take a gig, uh, a touring gig over here in Southeast Asia with a, with sort of a Cirque du Soleil type production that was happening over here. A friend of mine, uh, was directing it and he asked me if I'd be part of it. And I'd never really spent a ton of time on this side of the world. So I, I said, yeah, man, I'll come check it out. You know, I mean, I, I don't have anything going on, you know? And and my lease and my condo was almost up and it was just kind of like the timing was was great. So I came over here and I did that production and that production ended up being a couple of months. It was like three, three and a half months that I was over here. And Verena, my wife, uh, we just celebrated a few days ago our 12th wedding anniversary, 12 year anniversary. Congratulations. Um, thanks. She was working for that company that was doing this production as a PR consultant. And, um, so I met her, you know, I got to hang out with her for a few months and, you know, that was, that was awesome. And then the thing finished and I went back to LA and when I got back to LA, my dad, who my parents got divorced when I was a kid. So my dad, wherever I would move to, my dad would move there, you know, to be around Aww, me. That's so sweet. And, uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, he, once and once, especially once he retired, he really, you know, he really followed me around quite a bit. And so he lived just a few blocks from me in Los Angeles and he kind of took care of my place while I was gone and stuff. And when I got home, he goes, dude, he, I, I kept telling him about her, you know, and I was like, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it work, but I probably need to move to Nashville, you know, so I can keep working. But she's there and I don't know, man, he goes, dude, he goes, why don't you just sell everything and move over there? Because you can do what you do from anywhere, you know, to the point now, if if somebody said to you, hey, next week, can you record this record here, you know, in the village in New York? You could tell them yes, and you could just take the deposit and spend it on airfare and fly over there and do it. You know, he goes, so, so you take a thousand dollar bath. Who cares? You know, you're making, you're making, you're making good money. If it's a six or seven thousand dollar gig, what's a thousand bucks for a plane ticket? You know? You can, you can still do the, the stuff you want to do and you can live where you want and there's no pressure and you don't have to be here and you don't have to pay, pay the, the crazy prices of living in LA and maintaining your condo and all this stuff. And, you know, and I started thinking about it and thinking about how wise that was. And I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe he's right. You know, so I put all my stuff in storage and I thought, okay, I'll try it. I'll, I'll give it like a trial time, you know, maybe three months or four months, whatever. Put everything in storage, got rid of my condo, sold my car, you know, put all my drums at, at the Cartage place in LA. And I went to Jakarta and tracked her down and, 
Yeah. Was she surprised to see you? Was she expecting yeah, you? She didn't. She didn't <laughs> think. Well, we had talked. We talked over Skype quite a bit. You know, obviously, I'd been gone for like a year though since wow. I saw her, and uh, we'd had several, you know, squ- Skype conversations, and she didn't think I was actually going to do it. You know, she just thought it was all talk because because a lot of people over here say that, you know, oh, my gosh, I love it over there. It's amazing. You know, I found myself in Eat, Pray, Love and all that shit. (laughs) So so but when I actually showed up and made good on it, she was shocked. You know, she was really shocked. And, you know, that introduced a whole bunch of other things because her family is is Muslim and like I'm not. And, you know, all this other stuff came into play. And, you know, so we navigated through that as best we knew how. And we just started dating and just taking it really slow. And I ended up being over here for another four or five months. And then I had to leave because my visa was up. And so I just packed my backpack full of stuff and decided to just kind of backpack around Asia and see this part of the world. You know, I didn't have any gigs back home. There was nothing in LA to go back to except for my dad. And he had come over here once already to hang out for a few weeks, you know, and see what it was really, what what the big deal was, you know? And so I took off and ended up being gone for about eight months. And I went to Japan and Sri Lanka and um, I, I went to Tibet. I snuck into to Tibet in the back of a water truck with a bunch of other people. Um, and I went to Hong Kong for the first time. I'd never been there. And Singapore and Taiwan and Vietnam and a whole bunch of places over here. And I recorded a lot of the stuff that I was doing with street musicians and stuff. I would just roll up and play with people and, you know, and have fun. And at one point I ended up back in Japan because part of my airline uh I, I got this ticket called an around the world ticket it was like you could pay it like you know a pretty pretty hefty fee but you had like 10 or 12 different stops you could you know use it over the course of six months or whatever so i did that and it began and ended in tokyo so i had to go to tokyo to you know get my own way to tokyo and then start my trip from there kind of and then it it was just you know full circle back to tokyo so i wound up back in tokyo for another month and a half, two months. And I just got a hotel room and I just mixed all of those performances that I had encountered into an album, into a world music album. Wow. Yeah. And I called it Eastern Chronicle and I played it for a couple of people and a bunch of people told me, man, you should, you should send this to some labels and, you know, see this, this is something that people would go for. And I'm like, really? I don't know. It was all instrumental and the, the stuff that wasn't instrumental was in languages that nobody, including me, really understood. But it was sort of like a deep forest kind of, uh, you know, um, world music, Peter Gabriel kind of thing. And I played a ton of instruments that I didn't really know how to play. Probably played them all wrong. It was, it was just, it was this experimentation time of, you know, just this, this time of experimenting with things and figuring out how things worked and cool sounds that I'd never heard before. And just, just, just a, a really fun, amazing time in my life that I'll never be able to repeat. It was just, it was just a phenomenal time. And so anyway, I ended up with 12 tracks and organized them into an album. And then I had a friend at DECA in the UK and he turned me on to some people at Warner Brothers that that he thought might be interested in it and so I got a publishing deal a limited publishing deal with Warner Brothers which they in in as part of the 
part of the deal, they agreed to pr- help me promote the album. I could release it independently through, they had an independent program at the time. And they, they might still. And so I released it through them. And it didn't really do anything, but it was just a fun thing to do. You know, I didn't tour it or anything or play live or, you know, you really couldn't. Cause well, I was going to say, you know, how do you replicate that? Yeah. Would have, would, wouldn't have been possible really. I don't mm-hmm. think, but, but um, anyway, I did that. And then about six months later, I did the exact same thing in South Africa. I went over there and lived there for about four or five months and just did the same thing. I ping pong back and forth between a couple of places over there. Cape Town and Johannesburg. And this time I kind of researched it out ahead of time. I, I met people on Twitter. At the time I was really involved on Twitter and I would link up with people and kind of set things up. I met a choir director over there at a church. He was a very dear friend now. And and I stayed at his, his house with him and his wife and their two kids uh, for the majority of the time I was there. And he really helped me a lot. He introduced me to a lot of musicians. So that was my second solo record. Quela, and that was fun too. It was just a completely different flavor. And, you know, so that sort of got me in the studio again, except in a different role, you know, not, not, I mean, I played drums on everything, but I also engineered it and recorded it and learned a lot about mic placement and, you know, learned, I, I, I had no idea really because my whole career, people had engineered for me, you know, I'd go to a session and there was already engineers and they'd have everything set up and they, they knew how they wanted the drums to sound. But this time it was me making the decisions, you know, and I, I had to really learn quickly, you know, what polar patterns were and, you know, how to EQ things properly and and what compression was and all this stuff, you know, stuff that I'd, I'd really listened to engineers talk about over the course of my time in studios, but never really had my hands on it myself. So it was sort of those two albums were sort of a crash course between 2012 with Eastern Chronicle and 2015 with Quayla. That was sort of like a three-year kind of a, a crash course masterclass and how to record, you know, properly without board gear and and plugins as well. You know, I just really had never really dived deep into that stuff. You know, I knew enough to be dangerous. I knew enough to score a film, but I didn't, I didn't really, you know, scoring, scoring a film with orchestra is vastly different than actually mixing band, a, a full band together, you know, a, a rock band or a pop band together, which is essentially what this stuff was, you know, just was foreign language pop. And I'd never done that before. So I learned that and that really kind of got me interested in production. And really, since then, that's kind of what I've been doing. I've been producing, <laughs> producing for other people, both over in the States and in the UK and here now too. And then recently with with Stone Cold, you know, we just put out an EP and we've got another one coming out next month. And I engineered and produced all of that in the room, you know, that's and that's really what I, it's, it's, it's been so much fun, man. The last few years of, of learning how to do that and, and trying to do it well, you know, I'm, yeah. I still have a long way to go. I mean, I, I have so many things I want to learn, but, you know. It's just the, the process. When you say journey, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's just been a long journey of learning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Discovered. those drums on that track sound sweet. <laughs> it sounds Thanks, really man. good. So, yeah, best of luck uh, with that. We seem to have come full circle to Stone Cold Killers again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's you great, know, yeah. which is great. But um, that's really, really fascinating stuff. I ask all of my guests to leave an item and a piece of advice in the music room for others to find. I wouldn't even begin to be able to guess what you would leave. 
Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to narrow it down to one, isn't it? <laughs> I, I guess you know what I've learned a lot of lessons. I think I think more about just how to be a, a better human than anything musical. I could say. I mean, you're you're gonna every everybody's gonna have the path that they have musically because we all come from different places and it's so subjective. And you know, we all we all grew up listening to different things, and there's really no right way to do anything. And sometimes the wrong way to most people is the best sounding way, you know, and, and your ears will determine whether or not you ought to do it that way, you know, even if it's wrong. But I think there's a right way to be a human and there's a wrong way to be a human, you know, and especially in this business. First of all, you got about 60 years before you got to really start worrying about, man, I'm running out of time. I mean, look at John Williams, you know, he's he's announced that he's going to do one more score, you know, he's going to do the Indiana Jones thing. And then, and then that's it. You know, what is he? 90, you oh, know, like yeah, easily. I mean, the guy, I mean, obviously that's an extreme example, but people who are just starting out, you know, coming out of school or, or, or whatever, you're 20 years old, 25, 30, even 35 or 40 years old, you know, you got time. You got a lot of time to learn and a lot of time to meet people. And there's a lot of people out there who are at the same level that you're at, at the same age you're at. And they're not going to have their shot until they're 50 or 45 or 40 or 35 or whatever. And I think it's easy to get really worried and, and full of anxiety about, oh, it's I'm running out of time. You know, I'm 26 and I still don't have anything going or I'm 30 or 35 and I still don't, I still have not scored a big film or whatever. I mean, I know, I know people in their sixties who've just done indies their whole career and they have a nice house and a great family and a couple of cars and vacations, you know, every winter. And I mean, they do well, you know, and they're not Hans Zimmer, but they can call themselves a professional composer, you know? Mm -hmm. They can call themselves a professional musician because they are. They're earning a living making music. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot between the top of that and the bottom of that. You know, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of margin financially. There's a lot of different situations. There's a lot of geography, you know, yeah. my in my case, you know, you can move. If you don't like what's happening, move. Move to where there's work, you know, or create your own work. But I guess the point is, don't feel bad about what hasn't happened, you know, or what society or the industry has told you should have happened by now, because it's not true. Everybody's got a different path. You know, my path has obviously been a, a crazy roller coaster of weirdness. I'm sure yours have too. You know, when you look back on what you've done, you're just like, man, I don't even, I don't even know how I got here, but here I am. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the ride, man, because it's. That's where the fun is. That's where it's at. You're never going to get to where you're going. I've accomplished a lot. I've accomplished pretty much everything I set out to do, but I'm still not satisfied. You know, <laughs> I want to do other things. And I mean, look, I'm, in, I'm 15 years old again in a band, you know? Yeah. So I, that would I, be, I guess, if that, if that makes any sense, I guess that would be what I would say. You know? Yeah. I love that. Don't feel bad for what hasn't happened. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 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 So there was an item and a piece of advice. That was advice. So is mm. there a something, a specific physical thing that you think mm. that you could leave for others to find, which you might help them understand something or do something or um, 
it can be anything. I mean, we've had so many okay. items. Okay, a thing, like a physical object. Yeah. All right. Yes. Okay. So this is going to be, this is going to appeal to mostly to drummers, unfortunately. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. The degenerates of your listening base. <clears throat> There's a thing called a attention watch. Probably the most popular version of it is made by Tama, the drum company, which I was a Tama artist for a number of years, and I love that company. But they came up with a, they actually have a rhythm watch, which is a metronome, and then they also came out with a thing called the tension watch. And it's basically a, I don't have one here in my office, but it's a little dial that has a little ball, kind of like a, like a cam and ball on the bottom of it. It kind of moves around and it's on a spring. And you set it on a drum head while you're tuning it. And it ba- and you kind of move it around the drum head. And it measures the tautness of the area of the drum head that it's sitting on. So that you can get even tension all the way around the drums. And probably as a drummer, when I do clinics and stuff, the biggest question I get from drummers is, how do you learn how to tune drums? There's a lot of ways to learn how to tune drums, but that is probably the best and fastest way to learn how to do it is to use a, t- a Tama tension watch. And they're like, they're like 20 bucks, you know, American uh, USD. They're not that expensive. And I have two of them. I have one in my drum bag and I have one just floating around my studio usually, but it's just the greatest little device. You can, you can learn how to quickly, cause, cause you, you know, you just basically dial it to the same spot on every point of the, you know, on every lug, right? Every parallel to every lug, you just make sure that whatever number you're on, if it's five or 15, that you're five or 15 all the way around. And it's just a great way to learn how to tune drums. If that's a mysterious, you know, thing to you, which it was for me for a long, long time. Yeah. (laughs) So that would be what I would leave for everybody is a tension watch. There you go. That's going in. And uh, your advice, of course, Dean Ogden, it's been a joy chatting with you. It's been great, man. Thank you for joining me in the music room. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Music Room podcast today. If you'd like to know more about the show or the community that surrounds it, head to musicroom.community. The link is in the show notes.